There is a beast described in the Bible more vicious and heinous and ugly and deadly than any you have ever seen with your eyes, than any you have ever touched with your hands. It is given its name in Genesis chapter 4. But it is described all throughout the Bible that beast is sin. Of course, I'm not talking about a physical beast. But hear the words of Genesis chapter 4 and how sin is described there, starting in verse 3. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Which is an expression of forgiveness and of restoration that was offered to Cain. But now pay attention. He says, If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. This message is called the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. And in Scripture, the sinfulness of sin must be understood via four factors. Its nature, its effects, its wages, and its remedy. Its nature affects wages and remedy. And like factors in a math equation that yield a product, these factors compound upon one another to equal sin. To give us what sin is, they multiply one upon another to yield for us a picture of the sinfulness of sin. So then the first factor of sin is its nature. And I want you to understand its nature inductively beginning with this passage, the Bible's first description of sin. Genesis 4 is the first instance in which this word sin is explicitly mentioned. Of course, while sin is present in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of Adam and Eve and the whole human race with them, what we don't have there is the word sin explicitly. What we have is the word evil the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve became like God in knowing good and evil. But in chapter 4, Scripture begins to explain what this new evil thing is. Here is found the normal, general term for sin used throughout the Old Testament. It occurs 600 times in Hebrew. But its first occurrence comes directly from the mouth of God to Cain. God warning sinners. Sin, he said, is like a crouching beast just outside the tent. A predator waiting to kill its prey. And not just to kill its prey, but to devour it. Because the word here, he says, its desire is for you. It's the same word as used up in chapter 3, verse 16, between Eve and Adam, how there would be a, a strife over dominion in the family. You see, Cain was already sinning, but Cain thought that it was justified, that it was satisfying sin, that it was rewarding even. But sin, in fact, is like what the, the, the Puritan Thomas Watson said, mischievous. Sin was like a roaring lion seeking whom it may devour. And you ought to be warned also, you must master sin. Or sin will devour you. This is the Bible's first description of sin. And it is, I believe, a springboard for the investigation of sin's nature throughout Scripture. For the Bible has much else to say about sin. In fact, sin is everywhere assumed in the Bible. Which is perhaps why Genesis 3 and 4 are reserved in their description of sin. Why there's no decisive definition in the Bible saying sin is X until you get to the New Testament and the end of the New Testament period. 
You, like Adam and Eve, know sin. You know good and evil. And the Bible knows you know it. It is everywhere assumed. As MacArthur and Mayhew wrote, of the Bible's 66 books and 1,189 chapters, only two books and four chapters do not mention sin or sinners. Genesis 1 to 2 and Revelation 21 to 22 stand alone. The rest of the Bible abounds with the themes of human sin and the need for salvation. Sin is a major doctrine. God is serious about sin. Thus also the Bible is rich with terms for sin. And I'd ask you to turn in your Bible to Exodus 34. Exodus chapter 34. There are at least ten words for sin in the Old Testament. It is multifaceted, textured, colored, nuanced, and complex. You need to know about sin, and so God has made it explicit in Scripture. Many ways. The three main terms in the Old Testament are chata, pesha, and aon. They often appear together as in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Let's read those verses. The Lord, this is God's confession of his own character. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousand, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. But we have here these three terms. I want you to see iniquity, transgression, and sin. That is how they are translated. And David in Psalm 51, when he's confessing his own sins, he uses these same three terms on the basis of God's character in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. That's a good way to confess your own sins before God. Aon means iniquity. That's how it's translated. It's a term for sin derived from a more basic Semitic root, meaning to twist or bend or distort something. Pesha, that's translated transgression. It originates from the political sphere, expressing a kind of rebellion against a king, a figurative crossing over a line. Chata, sin, is the word you saw in Genesis 4. It gives us the most familiar definition of sin that you have probably heard before, to miss the mark like an archer misses a target. And that is, in fact, one way it's used in the Bible, more broadly, to fail or to err. But don't attribute accidents to this word. It's not as though the word inherently means accidents, that is. If pesha, transgression, means doing something God says don't, then chata, sin, means not doing something God says do. When they are together, you can see that nuance between the two words there. But again, chata is, is this general word. It can mean both. It just means any kind of sin. Now, the main term in the New Testament is hamartia. It became the key technical term for doctrinal purposes, like in the book of Romans or Hebrews or 1 John. And those are the highest concentrations of that word in the New Testament. Hence, it's also where theology gets the term for its study of this doctrine, hamartiology. However, the New Testament also sets forth the concept of sin in equal as many terms as the Old Testament does. As one lexicographer puts it, the New Testament word group is mournfully numerous with words for sin. God is serious about sin. And since the concept of sin encompasses, of course, you understand more than just the words that we can translate as sin or the words in your Bible that are parallel to sin, we have to define biblical concepts more like an encyclopedia than a dictionary, you understand. So the words in your Bible that you are looking for when you're trying to understand sin include trespass, rebellion, disobedience, indulgence, offense, fault, crime, stumbling, going astray, violating, doing evil, doing wrong, perversity, immorality, impurity, depravity, debauchery, wickedness, lawlessness, guiltiness. 
and you can probably think of more, God is serious about sin. The Bible also depicts metaphors for sin for us. Of course, it's depicted as a predator beast crouching at the door, but it's also depicted as treachery against the king, which is why R.C. Sproul says this about sin. He calls it its cosmic treason. Sin is depicted as a cumulative debt that could never be paid. Sin is depicted as either running from or despising a good father. Sin is, is depicted as infidelity to a loving husband, as straying from a faithful shepherd, as abusing the gifts of a generous master, as infectious, defiling, isolating us from what is clean. And you who are familiar with Scripture can probably think of each one of those places where it is depicted that way. And so many of these metaphors, sin is shown to be not merely rule-based, but it is more basically relationship-based. Sin is a severing of the relationship with God. The Bible, of course, also specifies kinds of sin. Stay with me, please. The Bible specifies kinds of sin, sins of speech, like gossip, lies, boasting, cursing, complaining, coarse joking, false promises, idle words, unwholesome words. Have you done any of that lately? Sins of deed, including deeds done with your hands, like theft or violence or murder or crafting idols. Deeds done with your feet, like walking where you ought not to go or with whom you ought not to walk. Deeds committed with your eyes, like coveting, lust, pornography, and cheating. Deeds committed with your whole body, like gluttony, drunkenness, adultery, cross-dressing, homosexuality, and idolatry. Sins of thought, including your own self-appraisal, like pride or trusting in your flesh. Your desires or motives like jealousy, greed, selfish ambition, same-sex attraction, or wanting anything that God has forbidden. Even your emotions like unrighteous anger or hatred or the fear of man or worry or delighting in evil. The Bible gives sins of omission and sins of commission, sins that are active and those that are passive, unintentional sins, and high-handed or defiant sins, secret sins, and public sins. Sins against law, sins against conscience. There was one unpardonable sin. There are sins leading to death. And there is the inescapable sin of status. Namely, that you are a sinner. And that is why you sin. All of these terms and descriptions paint a picture of sin that is broad and encompassing. God is serious about sin. These are its terms, its lists, its metaphors, its kinds. The Bible also succinctly defines sin for us in a few places that I alluded to. It's never exhaustive that way, but the most decisive definition of sin is that sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, verse 4, which assumes the moral law of God. That is, as James puts it, God is both lawgiver and judge, and that you, being his creature, owe God a debt of obedience. You owe God moral obedience, but that your every sin breaks his law. That's extended beyond written law also. It's extended to the conscience. 1 John 5, 17. All unrighteousness is sin. Romans 14, 23. Whatever is not from faith is sin. James 4, 17. To the one who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You know, deductively, you also ought to think about what is your greatest sin? What is your greatest sin that you have ever committed? Does it come to mind? As I heard Paul Washer teach once, your greatest sin is violating the greatest commandment. Which Jesus said in Matthew 22, 
was Deuteronomy 6.5, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. No breaks, no pauses, no suspensions, no mitigations, just full-time, all-out, abandoned love for God with everything that you are. That's the greatest commandment. The commandment that ought to be obeyed most. That's your greatest sin. And the second, Jesus said, is like it. Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commands, the whole law and the prophets depend. And I am a sinner in that regard. And you, my friends, are a sinner in that regard. That is why David in Psalm 51 looks at his awful sin against his neighbors and he says against you, God, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Derek Kidner comments on Psalm 51 saying this, sin can be against oneself and against one's neighbor, but the flouting of God is always the length and the breadth of it. For our bodies are not our own and our neighbors are made in God's image. But it gets worse. Not loving God, not loving neighbor are not merely sins of omission. They arise from a heinous sin of commission. And that is the replacing of God with whom? Self. You might be familiar with the biblical allusions to Satan's fall. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Satan was the one in whom God first found sin. Ezekiel 28, 17 says that his heart was lifted up in pride. Isaiah 14, 13 to 14 records him as saying to himself, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High. So it is no surprise then that when, when Satan, as the serpent, enters the Garden of Eve, how does he tempt Eve? You will be like God, he says. Sin desires to replace God with self, to put self on the throne, self on the judge's bench, self above the stars of God, self as the object of honor and love and praise and service. The sum of all this is the nature of sin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that it is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And that is true and helpful. But it's a little too narrow, I think. Because through the ages, the church has defined sin as what is against man, what is against reason, what is against nature, because it is for the sinning self, whether in word or deed or thought or desire as being, above all, against God. Thomas McCall, in his book on this doctrine, concludes this. Sin is whatever is against God, and God is against whatever is sin. That's the first factor of sin's sinfulness, is its nature. And we must multiply its nature by the second factor of sin, its effects. Its effects. And I want to show you three effects of sin out of Scripture. And there are many more, but this is what we have time for. The first effect is foundational, and the rest are built upon it. Sin renders a person, effect number one, corrupted in every part. Corrupted in every part. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. There is no part of our lives that is untouched by sin. Genesis chapter 5 was this death march from Cain all the way up to the flood in chapters 6 through 9. Many generations passed from Adam. Humanity multiplies. And then Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now look down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, 
for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. So God brought the flood. Yet even after the flood, God makes the same appraisal. Turn one more page over to chapter 8, verse 21. 8, verse 21 says, The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy the every living thing as I have done. You see, it's not as though God started with a fresh batch of humans after the flood, like dough without yeast or like cancer in remission. Noah and his family found grace in God's sight, but they were still sinners corrupt from their youth. In theology, this is called original sin. It's not that sin is essential to human nature, but that you inherited a sin principle from your physical father, Adam, and that you were imputed the sin guilt of your representative, Adam. That is original sin. That is why you are sinful from youth. We are sinners born in Adam's likeness, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. We are sinful from conception, Psalm 51, verse 5. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Who, asks Job, can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Job 14.4 Nor is the problem something in our bodies only. This is a problem in our hearts, in our inner man. Jesus taught in Mark 7, From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these proceed from within and defile the man. What I want you to see is that the effects of sin are Radical. You know, we hear that word radical all the time, especially on the news, speaking about radical Islam or something like this. Radical means to the core. The sinfulness of sin is not merely in the doing of sin. It is in the devising. It is in the heart that desires sin. I remember reading R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God. It was the book I read when I first became convinced of the doctrines of grace. And I especially remember his defense of the doctrine of total depravity. And when we think of the doctrine of total depravity, often our minds go to something like utter depravity, like utter sinfulness, like man is utterly, every one of us is utterly as sinful as we could possibly ever be at every moment, which is not what Reformed theology has meant by total depravity, not what the Bible teaches, but total depravity has been meant as radical depravity. Radical comes from the Latin word root. Uh, The Latin word is is radix, meaning root. And such are the effects of sin in humankind. Such are the effects of sin in your own life. They have reached to the core of your being, to to the wellspring of your life, like Proverbs 4 says. The root beneath all the fruit that comes out in your life. Its headwaters as well as its streams. So that even your good works are stained with the dye of sin, Isaiah 1.18. And even your righteous deeds are like blood-stained rags, Isaiah 64.6. Sin renders humanity and the sinner corrupted in every part. And also sin renders a person, effects number two, enslaved and unable to change. That's effect number two, is enslaved and unable to change. And I'd ask you to turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. You know that some sins are more life-dominating than others like sins that train your physical appetites or sins that that create a chemical dependency, drug abuse, drunkenness, fornication, gambling, theft, things like this. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, it's a satire. He, uh, He writes of a senior demon who counsels his younger nephew demon to use pleasure as a trap for the demon's human target, saying this, 
An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. To get a man's soul and give him nothing in return, that's what really gladdens our Father's heart by which he meant Satan. And that is true from many scriptures that sin promises freedom and pleasure and life, but it delivers only increasing slavery and misery and death. And the verse that you've looked up just now in Proverbs 5 is a text that warns against sexual sin and how stupid sexual sin is. Look at verse 22. Proverbs 5.22 says, His own iniquities, the one who goes on in sexual sin, his own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. Like a prisoner held by chains of his own forging or a slave led away by ropes of his own weaving to the gallows. So is the sinner who continues in sexual sin. It is enslaving. But more fundamentally, everyone born into this world is a slave of sin. And we know that, don't we? You cannot stop sinning without a miracle from God. John 8, 34 says this. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And they are incapable of gaining their freedom from it. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also, who, who are accustomed to doing evil, can do good. It is not in the sinner's power to escape the corruption the derangement, the poisoned status of his nature. It clings to you like the skin on your body right now. Effect number three. Sin renders a person hostile with God. Effect number three. Sin renders a person hostile with God. Romans 8, 7 says that the sinful mind is hostile to God. Psalm 5, 5 says that God hates all who do iniquity. Romans 1.30 says that the sinners are haters of God. Psalm 11.5 says that the one who does violence, God's soul hates. And we could continue piling up verses on both sides of this hostility. And probably you have heard the phrase before that God hates sin but loves the sinner. Maybe you've even used the phrase before. It's very common. There's a sense in which that is true, of course, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But I have just cited for you the scriptures that state very clearly that God hates the sinner, not only the sin. Other terms that God uses in various settings for sinners themselves, and not only their sin, are detestable and abominable. Sin is offensive to God, and you need to understand that. In Jerusalem, I had a classmate in the the Hebrew Bible program. He's an international student from the UK. He was originally from China. He was so intelligent and very gifted with languages. And as he and I were between classes one day, we stood in line to get coffee, and I discovered that he had a Mormon roommate. And I just mentioned to him that his roommate was not a Christian. And that piqued his interest, and so he asked me to sit down and explain it. So we sat down, and we talked for hours that day. And I explained to him the gospel, what it means to be a Christian. The gospel in contrast to Mormonism, Catholicism, and secularism. And this friend of mine was secular. But he was absolutely locked on to what I was saying, and and, and he asked me to come again and and to meet again. And so we, we had lunch a second time, and then, and then we had it a third time, and I was just answering any questions that he had about the Bible or the God of the Bible, and I was texting him, just ask me. I don't know all the answers, but I will find them as much as in my power. And finally, on the third visit, and he said to me, okay, congratulations. He congratulated me. He said, you've convinced me. I think this is true. What do I need to do? Amazing. And I looked into my friend's eye. I've been praying for him since the day I met him. And I 
told him to repent from his sins. And as I leaned into what that meant to repent from his sins, he just didn't get it. He just could not assent to the fact that God had a right to be angry over his sin. I mean, he was willing to admit that he was a sinner. Yeah, we're all corrupt, right? I mean, we're all, we, everybody sins. But that God had a right to be angry, angry enough for hell, for sins. My friend was willing to accept the Christian worldview, the Christian explanation of, of the world and, and of logic and of physics and all these things that were attractive to him intellectually. He had this moral problem, and I had to end the conversation with him there just as winsomely as I could, telling him, you are not a Christian. And I praise God that he is still my friend and that we talk. And if he hears this message, I want him to know that I'm still praying for him and I love him. But I beg you who are listening to me now, do not deceive yourselves. God hates sin. God hates the sinner that will not repent. God is the owner, lawgiver, and judge of this world, and God has a right to be angry at your sin. Think about that term iniquity again, the, the twisting one. You remember? You breathe God's air to sin with your mouth. You tread God's dirt to sin with your feet. You see God's light to sin with your eyes. You spend God's gift to sin with your money. You abuse God's common grace in a multitude of ways. And God doesn't have a right to be angry. His eyes are too pure to look on evil with approval, Habakkuk 1.13. He is a just judge, and so he has indignation every day, Psalm 7.11. He will by no means acquit the guilty. Exodus 34, 7. And I am piling these things up upon you like weights on a scale and you on the other tray. I, I'm, I'm listing these things out as much as I can like a rap sheet for things that you ought to be arrested for because God is serious about sin. Sin renders a person in hostility with God. These are sin's effects which lead us to the third factor that we must multiply. It's wages. Sin's wages that make the sinfulness of sin so clear. The first wage is this, the wrath of God. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. You're keeping up with me. You're doing well. Thank you. Stay at it. Romans chapter 1. Scripture warns that there is a coming day of wrath, a day of vengeance for God, a day of reckoning when he rights all wrongs, but that in the meantime, sinners are experiencing his patience and long-suffering, his common grace, his mercy to not snuff them out immediately. Even still, day by day, Romans 1 verse 18 says this. Look at it with me. That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The temporal consequences of our sins make God's wrath known to us. So as we go on sinning, God's wrath is stored up. Look at Romans 2 verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, Paul says, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Like a tidal wave that draws up the ocean water from the shore, building its momentum out at sea. Like, like a gathering storm of ominous clouds and static energy that is frightening in the distance. 
before the thunder and the, the lightning and, and the torrent are unleashed. Like a volcano that smolders and quakes before it erupts. So the wrath of God is building for the day of its release and every day it grows worse and every sin it grows more severe and it is putting out signs now for sinners to flee. Sin earns the wrath of Almighty God. Sin also earns the wage of death. This is the second wage, the wage of death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. You know that verse. Ezekiel 18 verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine, says God. The soul who sins will die. And of course, God forewarned death in the garden. Genesis 2.17, God said to Adam and Eve, In the day that you eat from the forbidden fruit, you will surely die. And it was true, they died spiritually that day. And they contracted that day the, the contagion, the cancer of physical death. And they received the sentence of eternal death that day. Sin earns the wage of death. The third wage that sin earns is banishment from God. Perhaps you have not thought of this one so much. Banishment from God. Just think for a moment in, in terms of biblical theology, starting back in the garden, how God banishes sin. God drove Adam and Eve from the garden. God drove Cain even further away from his face. God drove Israel into the wilderness so that the bodies of rebellious generation would fall in the wilderness and die. God appointed a scapegoat to ceremonially bear the sins of the people away from him, away from the camp, to wander out into the wilderness and to die. God drove unfaithful Israel from the promised land into exile among the nations. God banishes sin everywhere in the Bible. So it is no wonder when Peter, the disciple, realizes that Jesus is the holy Son of God, he falls down on his knees and he says, Get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Have you ever had such a thought in your heart? I should be banished from God. God wants sin away. God wants sin out. Sin earns banishment from God. And because sin earns wrath and death and banishment, sin also earns the fourth wage, eternal hell. Eternal hell. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. The doctrine of eternal hell makes no sense to a person who does not think God has a right to be angry. It makes no sense to a person that does not think sin's death penalty is just or that sinner's banishment is necessary. But 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 says that Jesus Christ will come again dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's wrath, dealing out retribution. Verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. That's death. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's banishment. And Jesus, the master of all teachers on the doctrine of hell, says that hell is the outer darkness where sinners are cast, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die nor the fire goes out, where the devil and his angels will be tormented. Hell is where sinners, Thomas Watson said, are ever dying, never dead. And it is not as though only some sins and sinners deserve hell, as if there are mortal sins and venial sins, like the Pope says, or as if God grades us all on a curve, or as if God takes good works as a bribe in exchange for your sins. 
It is the same God, James says, who issues each command as well as every other, who is offended by one sin as well as the other, so that even if, James says, your only sin might be showing a little partiality or personal favoritism, you deserve hell. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all, James 2.10. Sin is not small. Sin is not small. You have offended an infinitely holy God, and it is only right that you should receive an eternal penalty. Of course, we sinners are offended by that idea that that God would give an eternal penalty for temporal crimes or an infinite sentence for finite crimes, we say. But what righteous judge has ever consulted a capital offender about his sentence? Or what righteous lawmaker has ever consulted a rebel to draw up the penal code in his nation? Hell is not designed for a man-centered perspective. Hell is fundamentally a God-centered, God-vindicating reality. And there is no escaping that reality because God hates sin. It earns his wrath. It earns the death sentence. It deserves to be banished from God, and so it deserves eternal hell. What will you do? What will you do? You are helpless if God does not help you. Helpless if God does not help you. If you have never contemplated the weight of your sin, if you have never felt exposed and ashamed before God, if you have never felt frightened by the cords of your sin tangling you, or filled with sorrow for the sinfulness of your sin, then your heart is still hardened and unregenerate to this day. And you are sinning your way to hell. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But even if you have felt such things in the past, if you are not still moved by the sinfulness of your sin, then something is wrong. You are helpless if God does not help you. What will you do? There is hope. There is hope. There's a fourth factor that demonstrates the sinfulness of sin. It's remedy. Sin's remedy. And that is Jesus Christ. For that, I ask you one more time to turn in your Bibles. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the clearest, fullest, longest explanation in Scripture of penal substitutionary atonement. Your Old Testament matters, by the way. And here God speaks of his suffering servant, beginning in chapter 52, verse 13. And Jesus is patently clear in the New Testament that this suffering servant is himself. Let's read beginning in verse 4. 53 verse 4. Surely, the prophet says, our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Skip down to verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a, as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in this servant's hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, God will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. 
as he will bear their iniquities. The remedy for sin is not that God overlooks it. Remedy for sin is not that God acquits the sinner because he will not. It is not that the sinner pays off his debt because he cannot. The remedy for sin is a sin bearer in the sinner's place. See how much it cost the Father. The remedy makes us also to see the sinfulness of sin, you see. See how sinful sin truly is. The remedy had to be a sin bearer who was perfectly righteous and without sin. Never missing God's mark. Never bending God's law or twisting his gifts. Never rebelling against God's dominion. Always loving God. Always loving neighbor. A sin bearer who was truly man and could stand in man's place, who could serve as our representative head, a second Adam, so that his righteousness could be imputed to us and our sin, our guilt, Adam's guilt could be imputed to him. A sin bearer who was truly God with an infinite nature so that he could exhaust an eternal penalty, hell so that he could satisfy an infinite requirement of righteousness, so that he could rise again from the grave, defeating death and proving that it is finished. A sin bearer who could reconcile God and man, who bore the awesome, righteous wrath of God and incidentally, also bore the unrighteous, puny wrath of man. Because as Jesus hung on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, the insults and the scorn and the spit and the weapons of men and their hatred for and hostility toward God were heaped up at Jesus, while at the same time, the hell that even that scorn deserved was pouring down from above on Jesus. And they met in the broken body and spilled blood of God's Son, who volunteered to lay down his life for us. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. Do you, sinner, want to be healed from your sin? Do you want to be cleansed from your sin? Do you want to be friends with God and no longer enemies? Do you want to belong to his heaven and no longer to his hell? Do you want to be forgiven your debt, set free from your slavery, pardoned from your treachery, relieved of your burden, welcomed home by a gracious Father. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Leave behind your sins with repentance. Cast yourself on the mercy of God's Son. Rest your faith in His life and death and resurrection in your place and you will find it all. Total Forgiveness of your sins. Sin's desire is for you, but Jesus has mastered it. Isn't that amazing? Jesus has mastered it for you. So many of you here have already done this very thing, as have I. Come to Jesus. And to you, I would ask 
don't you love him? Don't you just love Jesus Christ? What a Savior we have in him. Understand why the good news must be suspended so long until this last part of the message. Always. These four factors, as as I said, they compound one upon another to yield the product of the sinfulness of sin, of what it truly is. Because to better understand sin is to better understand salvation. And to magnify sin in your eyes is to magnify the Savior in your eyes. Romans 5 verse 20 says that the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, what? Grace abounded all the more. Praise God. Grace has abounded to you. Grace has abounded to me, and so you should respond in worship and in humility. But I would also ask you, do you adequately hate your sin? Are you killing sin in your life? Are you confessing and forsaking sin as God reveals it to you? Or are you hiding sin, protecting and holding on to sin, befriending sin in any way? Sin is no small thing. It is not to be trifled with. It is a deadly beast with destructive power. Sin is exceedingly sinful. And you can see that in its nature, in its effects, in its wages, and in its remedy. Praise God. God has gone out of his way to show it to you. And God has gone out of his way to make a remedy. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, who is sufficient for such things? God, we are so prone to waxing over our sin, to to glossing over it, to not taking sin seriously. But I pray, God, that today we will have considered it once again and that we will flee from our sins that we will cast ourselves on your mercy and give praise to you for forgiving sinners like us in Christ. If anyone is here today who's not repented, God, I ask that today they would be moved to repentance. For the rest of us, please, help us to be more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.